BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, January 30th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is brought to you by PBS and the premiere of Earth, A New Wild on February 4th. This new five-part series takes you on a journey to explore humankind's relationship with the planet's wildest places and most fascinating species. From reintroducing giant pandas to the wild to bringing technology deep into the Amazon rainforests, host Dr. M. Sanjayan reveals that when humans and animals get together, wild things happen. Don't miss the premiere of Earth, A New Wild, Wednesday, February 4th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. This episode is also sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio, information, and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. This week's episode was inspired by a paper that I read in the journal Science that describes a completely new method of looking at very, very small things. Now, you might remember in 2014, just last year, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to a few scientists who discovered a new way of looking at very small things. But now... In this new science paper, that way seems totally outdated. So Ed Boyden, who's a professor at MIT, and he's the head of the Synthetic Neurobiology Research Group at the Media Lab, develops tools for looking at the brain that are completely original. So one of the tools that he developed a number of years ago or helped to develop is called optogenetics, where essentially he's turning on and off neurons using a combination of gene therapy and light. And now he's just published a paper in which he's described a way of looking at very, very, very small things by, instead of bringing a microscope to them, blowing them up and making them bigger so that we can see them better. I was really excited about this paper, and I wanted to have him on the show. And it turns out that initially the idea behind microscopic expansion started out as you know, kind of a joke in a brainstorming session in their lab. um, You know, somebody proposed this ridiculous idea of making things bigger. And so when I asked about how they first came up with the idea of microscopic expansion, here's what he said. 
So we were starting to sort of joke around and think, well, what if we just made the darn thing bigger, right? You know, let's blow it up. And for a few months, uh, it kind of stayed at the level of, you know, sort of a comment that was more of a, you know, of an offhanded comment. But after a while, we started thinking, well, maybe, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. <laughs> the old stuff is, is really difficult to get to work. And it was unclear how any of these methods would ever be able to image a large intact 3D brain. And so we started reading papers and found a series of papers that um, on, on so-called super absorbent polymers, polymers that can absorb a huge amount of, of water and swell up to enormous size. Some of them have been studied by theoretical physicists because they undergo very interesting changes in their conformation. Others are, are simple enough that they're found as the actual absorbent material, material in baby diapers. And uh, we decided to give it a try. So, Kishore, what do you think? I, my first question is, is that applicable to a lot of different cellular structures beyond sort of the neuronal tissue that he's working with? Well, you know, it sounds like it is a lot. And I think, you know, we should let our listeners listen to the interview to get more ideas of how his work can be applied to other areas. But he talks about how, you know, uh, diseases like cancer, for example, tumors, if you can blow up a tumor and see really what it's made of, that's a way in which, you know, you might be able to find a solution to a problem that's been plaguing us for a very long time. So he's like the Adam Savage of the microbiology world, just setting off little bombs everywhere because boom, it makes him happy. Yeah. And sort of the best part is, is that the the polymer or the sort of the chemical that he uses in order to do this really is the same thing that we use to keep our babies dry in their diapers. <laughs> so that'll be an interview for today. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about some science in the news. So Kishore, what's on your mind? So after you interviewed Ed, who I think couldn't be at day over 35, I think I'm feeling old. So this week, I'm bringing a story about aging. And it was uh, this sort of fascinating story about using young blood to make you feel young again. Uh, I'm a huge watcher of The Simpsons. There was this old Simpsons episode where it was a treehouse of horror where uh, Bart's twin sewed a pigeon onto a rat, sewed them together and made a pigeon rat. And I was I was fascinated. Like, could that actually happen in science? Oh yes, it can. There's a uh, a group uh, that is now using something called parabiosis, essentially stitching two rats together so that their circulatory systems become intertwined to actually transfer blood from one rat to the other. And what they're uh, what these groups of scientists are doing is they're really studying the impacts of that young blood flowing into the older rat to see the impacts on aging sort of generally uh, in terms of how the uh, how cellular repair is functioning, if there can be some reverse to the aging process. So, you know, in some ways, this is exactly what Lance Armstrong got in trouble for, right? Blood doping, even though he didn't use necessarily younger blood, he used his own blood. But are you saying that potentially an application of some of this work is that we might see athletes or other people who are high performers try to inject themselves with, uh, you know, the blood of really people at the peak of their physical condition? So yes, they're going to inquire and no, that doesn't work yet. <laughs> uh, so one of the researchers that's involved is a UCSF scientist, Saul Valeda, who did a Reddit AMA this week on our science. And somebody asked him just that question. And he said, as soon as one of the early papers came out, they were flooded by requests from uh, sports figures, all trying to turn back the clock. But what he really goes on to emphasize is that they're in the early stages of this. There is this work that is suggesting there is some reversing in the aging, and uh, but they don't understand why. And there's some interesting work that's being done. Amy uh, Wagers at Harvard found 
that there's a particular protein GDF11 uh, that when they did a direct infusion of just that protein through the plasma, that it helped reverse damage in muscle tissue. So they're able to find a particular protein that's actually having a stimulation effect to stem cells in muscle tissue. And there's actually a human trial coming up. Hmm. Wow. I mean, I, you know, I have in my, in my head this kind of image of instead of going to the beach or, you know, to an all-inclusive hotel down in Mexico, um, when you get a little older, you go to one of these spas and they essentially hook you up to a circulatory system and you get the equivalent of a dialysis, but with the young blood of some, you know, young, beautiful person. I think the, uh, the researchers are cautious that this is about rejuvenation. Uh, infusions that will help repair, but they don't know what the long-term effects are. You're essentially injecting yourself with uh, some sort of substrates that are encouraging repair functions. If those repair functions get out of control, that could develop, lead to the development of cancers. So they don't really don't know what the long-term effects are. They don't know if uh, factors in the old blood are getting blocked or if it's factors in the new blood that are actually stimulating this regeneration. So before you go full sci-fi on us, I would say they're extremely cautious. But the hope is that this could have real impacts on neurodegenerative conditions and degenerative conditions altogether. Well, there must be something in the air. I mean, I guess it is the end of January, but I also was interested in some aging research that came around, um, this this notion that we can try to re- re- uh, reverse the aging process. And this is a study about uh, telomeres. So if... Our listeners aren't familiar. Telomeres are sort of the ends of chromosomes that, you know, in young people or young children, they're about eight to 10,000 nucleotides in length. And every time a cell divides, it gets a little bit shorter. So essentially, it's kind of like an internal clock that as you get older, your telomeres get shorter and shorter and shorter. And so there are some consequences of people whose telomeres are are shorter than others. So for example, um, there have been studies of women who are stressed uh, that, you know, turns out they have shorter than average telomeres, um, or people that have different diseases of uh, that cause age relate or age related consequences. Um, telomeres seem to be, you know, important in in a lot of these um, different disorders and so forth, and just in general aging. And um, so there has been some work too that I think is starting to um, kind of straddle the line of of sketchiness, <laughs> where people start to use telomere length to, you know, sort of make predictions about stuff and, and about, you know, whether or not, like, for example, meditation can shorten or lengthen your telomeres. I mean, th- you know, there's, there's some work out there that's starting to f- sound a little fishy. To I me. can't wait to for the genetic <laughs> test that tells me how long my telomeres are. Yeah, eventually, we need to have Elizabeth Blackburn on the show to really get to the bottom of this story. But a paper just came out in which the researchers actually seem to be able to turn back this internal clock by lengthening the telomeres in their animals. Um, so in some, what, what they essentially did is they, they used um, a modified messenger RNA to extend the telomeres, um, and that actually allowed those cells essentially to behave then as if they are younger. Uh, but the effect was temporary. So it's not like it's sort of a, you know, can completely reverse the aging process. But that is also good in terms of what the scientific usefulness of this tool, because you can, you know, you don't have to necessarily wait for an animal to to get very old in order to see the effect. How how many nucleotides did they add? They must have added a lot. I I think it was something like a thousand. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
uh, they had to add on on a on a end cap that's only eight to ten thousand in in length. Yeah, absolutely. You're exactly right. So it's about a thousand, and you know, it seems that um, that 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 sort of made a, a, you know a, a significant effect, and that you know, that's that's a I guess you know a ten percent increase. <laughs> That's so pretty that, significant amount that know, they had to add. I'm really uh, curious uh, down the road if this sort of mechanism they develop with the RNA messenger being able to uh, uh, affect and sort of rewrite the ends of the telomere can be uh, functionally important in other areas of research, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we still have a long way to go t- to really understand exactly you know, how this clock works and what its purpose is and, and so forth. And, you know, like you said, there are potential unintended consequences of artificially lengthening um, telomeres. But it's still exciting to think that maybe we are getting a little bit closer to, you know, reversing some of the effects that aging can have on our bodies. Well, I'll be interested to see where this research leads in the next few years. With that, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with our interview of Ed Boyden. Join PBS on Wednesday, February 4th for the premiere of Earth, A New Wild. This new five-part series takes you on a journey to explore humankind's relationship with the planet's wildest places and most fascinating species. From reintroducing giant pandas to the wild to bringing technology deep into the Amazon rainforest, host Dr. M. Sanjayan reveals that when humans and animals get together, wild things happen. Don't miss the premiere of Earth, A New Wild, Wednesday, February 4th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. This episode is also sponsored by Igloo. Igloo is an internet that you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work, share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and it's easy to configure even for the most non-technical of users. And it's built using responsive design, which means that everything you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go, on your phone. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an internet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash minds. Once again, that's igloosoftware.com slash minds. This episode is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from on topics ranging from politics to science to classics. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. And Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. You just have to go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and pick one of their 150,000 plus titles to download for free. I recommend The Martian by Andy Weir, which was my favorite book of 2014, and he happens to be next week's guest. You can download one of these for free right now by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, at Boyden. Hey, great to talk to you. I've wanted to have you on this show for a while. So you do know my husband, Adam, uh, whom you might remember from Stanford, where you guys... Of course. You were a grad student. He was a postdoc. That's right. Um, And I remember Adam, when he first met you, said something to me that has stuck with me forever. And he said, 
that guy, Ed, one day he's going to win the Nobel Prize. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And here you are, not much longer later, and I feel like you've already had two Nobel Prize winning ideas that you've published. So I want to talk about the most recent one. You've just had a paper that came out in the journal Science, and it describes a new way of looking at very, very small things. And I've heard that this idea started out as a joke. So tell us a little bit about that. It wasn't really a joke in the sense of, you know, trying to to make something particularly funny for like a comedy special or something. It was more of a like the sort of frustrated joke that you would say when you've been trying to do something um, the old fashioned way and it just wasn't working. So at the time, a couple of us in the group had been spending a couple of years actually collectively trying to figure out how we could image very small things. And the reason we want to do that is because the wiring of the brain is um, sort of a difficult thing to crack. The brain is large, but the connections are really small. And so if you want to image how the circuits of the brain look, you need to be able to zoom in to tiny, tiny things, nanoscale things. And yet you also have to be able to look at large extended 3D objects. You know, the the, our, the human brain is 10 centimeters or so um, uh, in dimension. And um, there are some neurons, cells of the brain that are actually extending a significant fraction of the way across the entire brain. So that was kind of the issue. How do you image really tiny things? So how tiny are we talking about? I mean, you know, you can still, we can see cells under the microscope. So, you know, there, there, there isn't necessarily that issue. But are you saying that you want to get, you know, deep into the, the gaps between neurons, into the synaptic cleft and look at what's happening there? Or, you know, what, what is it that you're so interested in at that very, very, very microscopic level? Well, if you take a look at a cell, of course, the cell itself can be very large, but there are all sorts of parts of cells that are really the the parts of the cells that make a cell do what it's doing. So if you look at a cell, there are many subcomponents. Neurons have connections called synapses, which are nanoscale, inter, you know, maybe uh, a few hundred nanometers. And then the synapses themselves have subparts as well. There's um, the presynaptic side, which releases the transmitter that causes one neuron to talk to another. There's the postsynaptic side, which has all these receptors, and the receptors um, are, are what bind the neurotransmitter and cause the signals to go down to the next neuron. And all of these uh, neurotransmitters that are in little packets called vesicles, the receptors on the postsynaptic side, these are all very, very small, you know, a few nanometers to a few tens of nanometers. And so that's really what we wanted to get at. Can we start to really look at um, parts of cells in the few nanometers to tens of nanometers? Because... That's what you want um, if you want to sort of study the building blocks of cells um, at length scales that really describe what they can do computationally. So let's get to the joke part. So how did you guys come up with this new idea? Ah, well, so we spent some time trying to work out um, ways of imaging the brain using old technologies like electron microscopy or some of these super resolution methods that won the Nobel Prize last year um, in chemistry. And um, they were hard to get to work, but perhaps more importantly, um, they are very difficult to use to image large 3D objects. You could get very good precision for a fairly confined two-dimensional image. Uh, just as one example, you can do electromicroscopy imaging of the brain, but to do that, you have to chop the brain into very thin sections, maybe just 50 nanometers thick, and then you can image each of those tiny 2D sections one at a time. And so you might need you know, millions to, to, to billions of sections to image an entire brain depending upon the species that you're studying. 
So we were starting to sort of joke around and think, well, what if we just made the darn thing bigger, right? You know, let's blow it up. And for a few months, uh, it kind of stayed at the level of, you know, sort of a comment that was more of a, you know, of an offhanded comment. But after a while, we started thinking, well, maybe, maybe this isn't such a bad idea. <laughs> the old stuff is, is really difficult to get to work. And it was unclear how any of these methods would ever be able to image a large intact 3D brain. And so we started reading papers and found a series of papers that um, on, on so-called super absorbent polymers, polymers that can absorb a huge amount of, of water and swell up to enormous size. Some of them have been studied by theoretical physicists because they undergo very interesting changes in their conformation. Others are, are simple enough that they're found as the actual absorbent material, material in baby diapers. And uh, we decided to give it a try. And sort of simple expansion worked quite rapidly. We can make things bigger, cells bigger. Um, and then it took a couple of years to really make sure that it was very, very smooth and isotropic and low distortion all the way down to the nanoscale. And that required some real chemistry to try to optimize everything. So yeah, I love the fact that you're using something that's similar to baby diapers um, to do something so important as to, you know, understand how the brain is wired. I think there's 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 something really poetic about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's talk a little bit about the actual process. So you know, as you mentioned, you're making these little things much bigger, but certainly then aren't you losing a lot of the information that you would want by expanding them? How do you how do you ensure that the same, you know, sort of proportions and, and that, that the object still retains its its um, important features when you're expanding it? So we want to make things bigger, but we want the relative positions of all the things to stay the same. So imagine you have a balloon and you draw a picture on the balloon. And then you start blowing up the balloon. Maybe you're breathing air into it through your mouth, and it becomes bigger. And the picture becomes bigger too, but all the parts of the picture stretch evenly. So at the end of the day, when you've blown up the balloon, the picture looks the same, but it's much bigger. That's the challenge. So what we wanted to do was to figure out how could we synthesize a polymer that would have this property, except now in three dimensions. So what we did was we would wash in to a preserved cell or brain tissue, preserved with a chemical called a fixative, we would wash in the building blocks of the baby diaper polymer. If you just dump the whole baby diaper polymer on top, of course, it just sits there like a lump. So you have to somehow find a way to get the baby diaper polymer to be synthesized evenly throughout the entire structure. The way we do that is we add these building blocks called monomers, which are basically the things that, when they are assembled into a long chain, become the polymer. Um, you can think of it as, you know, you have railroad cars that are uh, one by one, um, but then you want to assemble them into a long train. And the railroad car uh, is one building block, and then you want to get them all to line up into a fully assembled train. So we wash in these monomers, which are like the railroad car, into the brain um, uh, or the cell, and we wait until they're very evenly um, permeated throughout. And then we trigger the formation of the polymer. And now you can think so of let's, this. So let's let's stop for a minute. So how first of all, how do you ensure that they're evenly distributed? I mean, you do you just insert them or do you somehow do you have to have some kind of other process that, you know, makes sure that they're evenly distributed? Currently, we wait for a while until we think that the fusion has caused the distribution to be to even out. And um then once we uh have a very even distribution, which just requires some time, then we trigger the polymerization. And you can do that through a variety of, of strategies, including changing the temperature or other other strategies that trigger 
you know, the, uh, the initiator to start the polymerization process. So once it starts to polymerize, what happens? Well, once the polymerization starts, what happens is all these monomers, the building blocks, the railroad car um, uh, individual um, vehicles, they start to assemble into long chains. And we also add another chemical called a crosslinker, and that couples the chains to each other. It links them to each other. And so that means that we have a mesh. So it's almost like a fishnet. You have all these meshes going in all directions, um, and they evenly permeate throughout the tissue or the cell. And so uh, we think that the spacing between these chains uh, is very small on the order of a biomolecule itself, just a few nanometers in size. So that's why uh, our methodology um, is isotropic or even when you trigger the expansion by adding water, everything swells and moves apart from each other. So now that you've got this slightly bloated thing, um, how do you then image it? What do you, how do you look at it? Do you just use a regular microscope or is there some other method? Well, there's one other trick that we currently do to make it even more even before we do the actual microscopy. So if you form these polymer chains and then add water to swell up the polymers, just as you could add water to a baby diaper material and swell it up, um, it'll try to push apart all the parts of the cell away from each other. But there's an issue. The cell itself has structure, and that structure will resist. So what we need to do is to find a way to, di to digest away all the endogenous structure, but to leave the parts that we want to see visible. So this is where some real chemistry came in. Um, and what we devised was a strategy. Um, this is work that was done by the two graduate students, Faye Chen and Paul Tilburg and, and me, <clears throat> a strategy for making um, the visible things expand and all the rest of the stuff would be destroyed. So how does this work? Well, suppose that you could take some of the biomolecules in your sample and make them glow. Now, if you look at a cell under a microscope, you don't see much. It doesn't look very interesting, right? It just looks like a blob. So the way that most people in biology and medicine make things visible is to add some kind of glowing dye. And then the glowing dye is what you actually see. So what we devised was a strategy for targeting a glowing dye to a biomolecule of interest, like a protein, uh, maybe it could be part of the nucleus or part of the synapse or part of another part of an, a cell. And the glowing dye also contains a chemical group that looks, that looks a lot like the monomer, the building block, the train car. So now what happens? We wash in this interesting chemical before we start the polymerization. And so what happens when we polymerize is, as the polymers form, this sort of odd chemical that we developed will get linked into the polymer. And when that happens, the fluorophore will also be attached to the polymer. So if you think about it, we've attached the fluorophore to the polymer at a site that's determined by where the biomolecule was. And so now, if we wipe out the original biomolecule, which we can do by adding a protein or an enzyme, we can expand the fluorophores, the glowing dyes, and the endogenous, the natural biological structure has been wiped out. So it doesn't resist the expansion. Wow. So is there anything that you have already applied this technique to? Are there any findings that you've discovered, you know, about the brain or about any other um, biological entity uh, that, that, you know, that, that shows that this method has already proved, um, you know, worthwhile? Well, um, we're starting to try to apply it to a variety of systems. So I'll give you a couple examples. One example is um, there are some small animals that are widely studied in biology, 
like certain kinds of fish or certain kinds of um, uh, flies, like the fruit fly, uh, Drosophila. And these are very important in biology because you can study all sorts of interesting molecular and genetic processes in them, and many of them are similar to processes in mammals and even humans. So one thing we're trying to do is to see if we can apply the expansion process to the entire brain of a fly or a fish. So if we can do that, we could try to map an entire brain, all the sensory inputs, all the motor outputs, all the emotion and decision-making circuitry in the middle. And it'd be very exciting just to have a map of any brain completely. You know, we don't really have um, full maps of any vertebrate brain. And even for invertebrates, the maps are pretty few. And, um, and um, many of them are lacking molecular information. That is, we don't know where all these molecules are that signal information transfer from one cell to the next. So here, we could potentially do that kind of mapping of an entire small brain. And, and this is something that actually seems to be a popular idea amongst a lot of major research institutions so, and initiatives. So, for example, Obama's brain initiative, um, you know, where he, don't, he, he set aside a whole bunch of money to essentially map the brain. And I, I believe they're starting with a mouse model. Um, and then there's also another similar project uh, that's going on in Europe. So is this something that you are working with these other groups uh, to do? Or do you think that your method will actually, you know, in some way scoop them? Well, the different brain initiatives of different countries are organized in different ways. So the U.S. brain initiative is a bit different from the others in that it's really investigator-initiated, bottom-up um, uh, proposals from different people. So last year, 58 different projects were funded. And they were on all sorts of different technologies, ways of mapping, ways of recording, ways of stimulating, and so on and so forth. And in a diversity of species as well, I should point out. Um, so uh, the U.S. brain initiative, you could argue, is pretty democratic. And um, many of the people involved, we hope, will use our tools. You know, we're trying to build tools that help empower all of biology and medicine. And not just brain. We, we think that there are all sorts of problems in biology and medicine where you would like to be able to map a large 3D object with nanoscale precision. For example, consider a tumor. So, of course, in a tumor, you have all these different cell types, stem cells, angiogenic um, infiltration of blood vessels, metastasizing cells, and so on. And yet, the actual pathological processes, how a cell moves, how a cell divides, are governed by nanoscale signaling pathways. So another area that might be very interesting is to look at things like cancer. A third example is to look at um, things like the immune system. You know, there are all these different autoimmune conditions where immune cells start to, um, you know, embed themselves in different organ systems and attack endogenous um, cells that normally you need to, to live, type 1 diabetes and so on. Um, again, it's a case where you have a large object and you want to understand the nanoscale pathophysiology that causes it to occur. For the European Brain Initiative and other countries' brain initi initiatives, um, I'm not as familiar with those, uh, but certainly we try to, dis to distribute all of our tools to everybody as freely as possible. You know, we've, we've, we've put up a website that talks about how to do the expansion method, and um, we're happy to, to share it with any and all people. That's awesome. So as I mentioned at the top of the episode, uh, in my opinion, this is not your first Nobel Prize winning idea. <laughs> So as you as you mentioned in 2014, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry did go to a group that uh, was looking at the problem in a different way, and of course your your solution is is completely novel and in some I I would argue just as as worthy. Um, but 
previously, you've also had another completely different way of looking at cells in the brain. So why don't you describe that method? Sure. So um, uh, this is actually a project that began when I was um, a grad student at Stanford. And um, I was uh, collaborating with a, a, a fellow grad student, then postdoc, uh, Carl Dyseroth at the time. And we were trying to figure out, are there ways to activate brain cells? And at the time, uh, many people were interested in ways of activating brain cells using electricity or using magnetic fields. There's a problem, though. The electric fields and magnetic fields activate kind of indiscriminately. They might activate, for example, cells that are right where you've um, you know, aimed your energy at, but they also could activate um, cells that are right next to them that you don't care about. And the brain is very densely packed. Ideally, you could dial in information with the correct spatial resolution um, of the brain itself, you know, activating individual cells one by one. But because the cells are all packed together, it's not possible with electricity or magnetism to activate just one cell and nothing around it. So we started brainstorming about whether there are ways we could do it with light, um, because light, of course, can be aimed at things, unlike you know, electricity and magnetism, which forms these, these, um, these lines and even loops, which makes it difficult to focus it. And um, I stumbled across a paper from a group in Japan that had been investigating these so-called microbial opsins. And microbial opsins are basically proteins that come from single-celled organisms like bacteria and archaea and algae and, and so on. And more recently, they've, they've uh, started to be found in other species as well, like even, uh, even fungi. And at the time, many of these molecules had been described, but they were all associated with so-called halophilic archaea. And what that means is halophilic meaning salt-loving and archaea meaning the specific set of single-celled organisms. So these are the kinds of single-celled organisms that live in very salty water, like in parts of San Francisco Bay or the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake. And these are the organisms that give very salty water its sort of reddish-orange hue. And so up until around 1999, a lot of people were studying these fascinating molecules. They were discovered in the 1970s um, because they, they implement a very primitive form, you could argue, of, of photosynthesis, of energy capture. Um, they convert light into electrical energy. And in 1999, this group in Japan published a paper that found that one of these molecules – for whatever strange evolutionary reason, um, actually had normal function at low salt levels. That is, levels of salt um, similar to that in the brain. And so we started collecting these molecules from other investigators because, again, this, is, this was a relatively uh, maturing field. People had studied these since the 1971 or so and uh, started getting molecules and putting them into neurons, thinking if you could put this molecule into a neuron and then shine light on it, these molecules would convert light into electrical signals. Neurons compute using electrical signals. And so you could actually control a given neuron with light. Now, we were very lucky because it turns out that these molecules have a bunch of interesting properties that were totally serendipitous. One could not plan for this. First of all, um, we were lucky that they are encoded for by a small gene that you can put into neurons using any one of a number of gene therapy or gene delivery methods. And it doesn't need any exogenous chemical cofactors to be delivered. That is, it works all by itself, the product of this gene. The second bit of luck was that it was safe, and it expressed in mammalian neurons. You know, these are from single-celled bacteria, archaea, you know, and so on. Um, it's not at all obvious that they would have actually worked at all 
in mammalian neurons. The third thing is, you know, neurons in the brain are very, very high speed. You know, they're computing with millisecond timescale electrical pulses, which might seem slow compared to a computer, but which is very fast for a biological event. And we were very lucky. These molecules actually have kinetics, that is, time courses of response that are in the millisecond timescale. And so um, these tools, which are now uh, widely known as optogenetic tools, opto for light and genetic because they are uh, fully genetically encoded and don't require any chemicals or nanoparticles or other things to be delivered um, continuously, um, have really started to take off. And so the reason that they're taking, they're taking off is because if you can activate a cell or a set of cells, you could try to figure out how those cells contribute to behavior. Do they initiate something like fear or, you know, one group has even found a set of cells that when you activate them triggers violence of all things in a mouse. Um, and, uh, and many people are trying to turn off neurons as well using a second class of molecules that we've adapted for neural control. And for that, you can imagine turning off, for example, cells that are overactive in epilepsy. Could you shut down the overactive cells that cause seizures? And so are there any kind of um, applications of optogenetics that we should be worried about um, getting into the wrong hands? Uh, you know, is it, is, do you still have to, you still have to presumably insert the gene in order for this to be effective in a human being, for example. Um, but, you know, is that, is that something that in the future causes you to lose any sleep? Well, there are many neurotechnologies that are, are very valuable for studying the brain and even for helping repair the brain. Deep brain stimulation, for example, there are tens of thousands of patients who have had electrodes implanted in their brain. And by stimulating the brain, you can help people with Parkinson's or various kinds of movement disorders. There are also non-invasive ways of altering brain activity using magnetic pulses. And of course, uh, pharmacology, you know, many people uh, take medicines that either help with severe pathology like epilepsy, um, but also you can see a continuum almost all the way to uh, substances like those in coffee and tea, which you could argue are also kind of neurotechnologies, right? They make you more alert. So I think that neurotechnology as a whole does need to be concerned with the proper ethical utility of these um, technologies. And there's two strategies that I think are really important. The first thing, of course, is to make sure that we have as open and above board and uh, public a discussion of how these technologies are used. And that's sometimes difficult. People don't like to talk about their brains. Um, I was on a panel, for example, where the uh, the host of the panel, this was at the World Economic Forum a couple years ago, asked how many people in the audience use some kind of of drug for brain enhancement. And of course, I think we've all read stories about how Ritalin and other drugs are are being used for non-clinical purposes. And nobody in the audience raised their hand. And so then the, the host of the, the, the panel, who was the editor-in-chief of the journal Nature, said, well, you know, we've done some polls. And, you know, we think that some people should have been raising their hands. And so one of the questions, of course, is how do you get people to talk about this? The second thing, of course, is that we need to be proactive. We need to get out ahead of technology and be sure that we take a stand about what we think are the ethical and non-ethical applications. The paradigm that I really like was the one set up by the DNA industry, um, in 1974, a lot of people got together because this is just when people started to, to clone DNA, to take a gene from one organism and to put it into another. And uh, people got together in a small um, uh, campground called Asilomar in California, and they held a meeting. And everybody got together and said, all right, this is what we think is good. 
And these are things that we think need to be reviewed by others. And, and they put in all these processes in place too. And so now if you are doing DNA research at any university um, or, uh, you know, under any kind of federal funding or under other, um, you know, uh, circumstances, you have a board that has to review it. Um, and if, if it seems like the kind of thing that could be dangerous, um, you know, they will come by and want to make sure that it's scientifically justified. And so one idea is, well, maybe we need to do that for neurotechnology. You know, maybe at some point, um, not too early and definitely not too late, we want to get everybody together and figure out, you know, what do we think about humanity? You know, what do we want to do and uh, where will it take us? And so one could argue that it might be premature now because tools like optogenetics are not used in humans at all. And in fact, um, you know, it's a gene therapy uh, to get the gene into a cell. No gene therapy has ever been approved in the United States. Um, and so, you know, the technology could change many fold um, in the coming years. Uh, but definitely we think that this is something that would be very exciting to open up conversations about. And in this Obama brain initiative, there is a neuroethics component, which I think is very important. So that's sort of the dark side of neurotechnology. But, you know, looking ahead in the next 10 or 20 years, what are you most excited about in terms of how your technologies, whether it's optogenetics or microscopic expansion, um, might change the way that we live our lives? So a lot of people are using optogenetics to activate and shut down neurons to figure out how they contribute to brain functions. And expansion microscopy, we only published a couple of weeks ago. And so um, many groups are interested in, in trying it out, and many are, are already ramping up their work on it. But one of the dreams that's emerging is suppose we could take a brain, we can record all the neural activity in it, we can map all the connections and the molecules at those connections, and we can control brain circuits to figure out in a causal fashion how they really work together. You can think about uh, a couple of different implications of this. First of all, a lot of people are very excited about new models of com computation. Um, Google and Facebook and Baidu and all these companies are investing heavily in machine learning. That is, algorithms that work in some regards to the way that models of the brain are thought to operate. But of course, we don't have maps of the brain yet. If we have actual maps of the brain, maybe we will notice interesting motifs in the circuitry, which are doing interesting computations. And maybe that will lead to new ideas about what intelligence and creativity and so on are, things that you could argue humans uh, are very capable of, but that computers are not yet able to, um, to generally perform. A second impact of the work, we're very inter interested in trying to sort of ground truth medicine. So there are so many different medical disorders, brain disorders, and then also other complex disorders like cancers, autoimmune diseases, aging-related diseases, where the phenotype, that is, the actual appearance of the disease is fairly complicated. It can involve many circuits in the brain or many parts of the body in the case of a metastasizing tumor or many systems in the case of how an immune system that goes throughout the body might attack one part of the body. And so we think that, you know, of course, there's a lot of desire to build uh, treatments to help address these problems, but they're very, very risky. Right now, it's been estimated that it can cost between $1 and $3 billion to develop one therapy and bring it to market. And that's because the risk is very high. There's so many ways for a therapy to fail or to have side effects because the body is so complicated. And so one of the dreams that's emerging is, well, what if we can make a map, a map of the body with nanoscale precision? And so we can really understand the entire configuration of an organ or an organ system 
in a disease state. So, you know, if you look at the history of science, which I like to study just because I think you can learn about the future, there's often a point in a field where the aftermath and the activities that beforehand are very different. You know, imagine chemistry in the 1800s. And then the periodic table of the elements was formed. People developed tools like X-ray crystallography, spectroscopy. And people started to really categorize and understand the dozens of chemical reactions that are out there. And now you can make computer chips and plastics and things that can go into outer space and implantable biomaterials. So one question is, well, what, what's going to happen for medicine? How do we get the, the, uh, the map of, of medicine in a way? And so one idea is, well, we know that many of the most complex diseases that affect us are global in scope, and yet you want to understand the nanoscale processes that happen within. And so one hope that we have for the expansion microscopy method is that we can start making maps of the disease phenotypes, and that will help us understand kind of the control knobs on how to fix these very complex disorders. So that's the second dream that we have, is to really have maps of, of disease. So, you know, we're, we're living in a time where we have a lot of sort of doomsday scenarios going on, um, you know, about even the cost of medicine, climate change, and, and all of that. But I have to say, just talking to you makes me feel really hopeful about the future and all the wonderful things that we have to look forward to. So thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Ed Boyden. Great talking to you. Uh, that was a fascinating conversation. I... I wonder if some of this work is going to allow us to really come up with uh, almost real-time mapping of of these tissues with this sort of explosion uh, 3D technology that he has going on. Yeah, I mean, that's his whole hope. I mean, he really thinks that this is the way to go in terms of mapping major 3D structures like the brain, uh, and that this will really kind of change the, the pace at which we are able to make discoveries in neuroscience. Um, you know, I think uh, I'm excited about it. I think that's ambitious. And sometimes there's a part of me that wonders if even when we are able to map the human brain, for example, or even the mouse brain, um, that it's going to be a little bit disappointing in the same way that sequencing the human genome seems to have been disappointing, right? You know, when we sequenced the human genome, people thought, okay, this is it. Now we know what the genome is, and we can start applying this immediately to help solve all these genetic problems that we have. And it hasn't really been the case, right? And I think the same thing might happen when we start to map a brain. So for one thing, I think just like DNA, you know, your brain and my brain might be similar in a lot of ways, but there's also some differences, right? And those differences might be pretty important. And I've always wondered because there's um, projects like iWire uh, and other um, citizen science projects related to the brain that have this sort of goal, like, can we map almost a connectome instead mm -hmm. of the genome that allow us to sort of visualize a memory? It, but that's just going to be this, you know, very specific point in time. And that brain, uh, our brain isn't sort of this static piece that we can map and all of a sudden we have this 3D rendering of our brain. Exactly. I mean, I think that that's the kind of, and you know, I agree, obviously there's a lot we can learn from being able to map the brain. I just don't think that it's going to be the sort of panacea for all of the questions we have about how our brains work the way that some people think it is. Um, because certainly our brain is, you know, a snapshot in time is going to be very different from one, one time to another. So, you know, there's still a lot of complexity that even when we have a completely mapped brain, we're going to have to consider. Um, and I, 
you know, I also, so, so for me, I always kind of come back to what I think is really exciting about neuroscience work is how it relates to behavior. And I think that that's one thing that, you know, we still have to continue to think about that we have to understand human behavior, um, even as we begin to map the brain, because just understanding how that behavior is mapped on the brain might not give us any real insights into the behavior itself. I, I'd say I'm most hopeful uh, for this research when it comes to neurodegeneration. It seems like this real-time mapping will have the most tangible outcomes in terms of understanding sort of processes that lead to degradation. I completely agree. And that's where I think it's most exciting and in some ways most necessary because, you know, there are few diagnoses that are as devastating as Alzheimer's disease, for example, um, or other neurodegenerative conditions. And, you know, that, that kind of slow decline that we have to watch in our loved ones is just, it's so tragic and it, it causes so much suffering. So if we can figure out how, you know, the map of the brain can be used in order to help slow this degeneration, um, then I think we're really getting somewhere. Well, I guess we'll just have to wait for Google Brain to give us 3D directions of our brain. (laughs) Or for uh, Ed Boydant with the Nobel Prize for his mapping of the human brain. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, and anything you'd like us to do at inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode is brought to you by PBS and the premiere of Earth, A New Wild on February 4th. This new five-part series takes you on a journey to explore humankind's relationship with the planet's wildest places and most fascinating species. From reintroducing giant pandas to the wild to bringing technology deep into the Amazon rainforests, host Dr. M. Sanjayan reveals that when humans and animals get together, wild things happen. Don't miss the premiere of Earth, A New Wild, Wednesday, February 4th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. And this episode is sponsored by Igloo. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work. Share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash minds. Once again, that's igloosoftware.com slash minds. And finally, this episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. To get it, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.